Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, I talk about the life and works of the artist Leonora Carrington with Dr. Kate Laity. Leonora Carrington is often considered part of the surrealist movement of the early 20th century, but her artwork is full of purposeful, esoteric symbology and otherworldly creatures, and often related to deeply personal events from her very eventful life. She also had a deep interest in mythology and the occult, and this would inform her creative output throughout her career. Alongside her art, she was also an accomplished author, with her most famous work perhaps being The Hearing Trumpet, a novel centred around nonagenarian Marion Leatherby, who is gifted the eponymous instrument, and her adventures at the very unusual old people's home she is banished to by her family. Like her artwork, the book is full of mysticism and mystery. Kate, my guest, is an award-winning author, scholar and critic, serving both as history witch for witches and pagans, and as associate professor of English at the College of St. Rose. She recently gave a talk about Leonora Carrington, at the fantastic Treadwell's Bookshop in London, which is the inspiration for this episode. Enjoy! Kate, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. So in this episode, we're discussing Leonora Carrington and a book she wrote called The Hearing Trumpet. Um, this is based off a talk that you did in Treadwell's earlier in the year, which I was sad not to be able to get to. So I guess my first question is, when did you first become aware of, of Leonora Carrington? Um, I'm not sure exactly, but I know the first time that I really connected to her was in, um, I'm not going to remember what year it is, uh, but the first of the occult humanities conferences that I went to, um, that are run by, um, Paul, Pam Grossman and, and Jesse Bradford, um, at NYU. They, we just had another one in, um, October. Um, but the first one I went to, uh, there was an art exhibit along with it called The Language of Birds. And I walked in there and I saw her painting um, called The Necromancer or The Magician. And I was just taken with it, completely taken with it. And I, at that time, I knew about her as a painter, but I and I had only seen a couple of her paintings. And that one just totally blew me out of the water. And then uh, much later that I learned about her writing, because it was just at the time where a lot of her stuff was starting to come back into print, because actually the first thing that I got um, was down below, which is her um, uh, narrative about being uh, imprisoned in a mental hospital during uh, the uh, World War II. And which is a very different kind of work, an earlier work and a much more sort of impressionistic one. And now from the point of view of having learned much more about her, um, that what had been normally said, which was like in the course of fleeing from the war, um, that she had a mental breakdown and was hospitalized. And now it's a little more um, unclear how much she was coerced into this. Um, her family apparently had a lot to do with, um, well, <laughs> well, I want to make it sound like a conspiracy theory, but her family was involved in getting her to this hospital and the hospital care that she had um, apparently uh, was not entirely uh, orthodox. Right. Yeah. I've heard about that. I mean, when it comes to, 
trying to understand Leonora Carrington and her kind of output in terms of her work, it's it's you have to kind of go quite a little way back, don't you, to to her early life when she was growing up at Crookhay Hall, I think. Yes, in Lancashire. And in fact, some of the some of the additional information that I've been getting recently is I finally found out that the there's a wonderful conference at Edge Hill University. Uh, so that they're really sort of, you know, focusing mm. on her as a Lancashire woman. Um, but there were a number of presentations and they've been, they've put them online on YouTube, which is fantastic. Um, I highly recommend them. So they, this conference I wasn't able to attend, I can now at least experience through the, through the video. So some of the information that I've um, found recently came through scholars who were there. Uh, it hasn't been in hasn't been in print yet, so that was where I was hearing a little bit more about the background of the the mental hospital. Um, but uh, if you're interested in Leonora Carrington, go on YouTube and, and find all those videos. There's uh, about oh, I don't know eight or ten of them, and so I haven't even made it through all of them yet because I only found that recently. <laughs> right? But, yeah. I'll, no, I'll have to seek them out because I know that yeah. um, when she was growing up, she sort of grew up in this the last era of, of big houses and houses with staff and and, and things yeah. like that. And she she had an Irish grandmother and a and a nanny, I believe, who sort of told her stories of of Irish fairy folk. Yes. The is it the 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 sheed and the and the, the gods of of old Ireland, the Tuatha de Danann. And um, it, it seems like. That was a time in which she was exposed to a, a sense of otherworldliness. Oh, definitely, and and she she talked about that quite a bit. And there's a wonderful painting called Grandmother Moorhead's Kitchen. Mm, and I love that one. <laughs> oh, it's, it's just gorgeous, and it it really has that sense of uh, what was very common to a lot of her her thinking of the the kitchen as sort of this center of the the magical cauldron where everything is kind of happening in the house and it certainly was apparently that way in her house in in uh, Mexico City um, but yeah it really conveys that sense of the sort of magic that she um, absorbed at that early age and and her um, the the novel biography by uh, Elena Poniatowska uh, it's really good at sort of recreating that that time period and sort of how she took in all these stories and thought, you know, she saw the she everywhere around her and talked to these these people that she saw. And so it really kind of flavored her imagination. And then later when she was living in Mexico, the the native traditions of folklore and gods and, and then the Nahua, the the uh, sort of shape-shifting characters. It all kind of worked together in the sort of cauldron of her mind. So all these different influences came together to create her unique perspective through these, you know, the paintings and the stories. Right, yeah, because it, I get the sense that she would engage with these concepts of, of these sorts of beings to sort of get away from the, the constraints that society was would put on someone in her position at that time because she was sort of presented at court wasn't she which, which sounds so old-fashioned now but but it was only a hundred years ago and I, th- I think like that just didn't that wasn't for her and and around that time she she wrote a, a is it was it a short story called the debutante yes yes and very, very much about her well her feelings about that experience yeah. which is um well 
her family was very wealthy, but of course they wanted to marry into, you know, class. Hmm. So being the only daughter of the family, she was, you know, what they considered their best, the best chance that they could. <laughs> so yeah, training her as a debutante, presenting her at court. And there's just these pictures of her and she just looks so miserable the whole time and just so restrained. But the story, the debutante is a, is about a debutante who, who sort of to relax in this horrible, stressful time, she goes to the zoo and she strikes up a friendship with a hyena, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of great. Like after over time, she learned the language and they could, you know, talk back and forth. And, and she was saying, Oh, you know, my life is so horrible. I have to go to these dinners. And the hyena's like, wait, dinners, food, what kind of food do they have? And so they, they make a little pact that they'll just, for one night, she'll trade places and the hyena can go to the dinner and she could just stay in her room reading, which is what she really looked forward to doing. And of course, you know, the, the gruesomeness of it, that, that it involves, you know, eating the face off one of the servants so that she has something to wear to look human. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <dear. laughs> but it, it really, I mean, there's the hostility about this idea of being forced into being a debutante. And, and of course, which failed spectacularly because she just was not interested in any of these men that were being foisted on her. And so she held out long enough. Her parents finally relented and let her to go to art school like she wanted. And she was always creating art, like these long series of uh, convent schools that she was sent to in the hopes that they would kind of settle her down. It really didn't work. And she got thrown out of every single one that she went to. Yeah, I've read that she said she would freak out some of the nuns at those schools with being able to write with both hands and write backwards and things like that. <laughs> oh, and, and I can imagine with her imagination that that was like, not very, yeah. But uh, again, even from that, she absorbed some. So when she got to Mexico, the, the sort of interest in the, the different practices practices of Catholicism and the kind of iconography that's that's very uh, distinctive to, to Mexico was also something that, you know, she takes it all on board. She takes all these different influences and then uses them sort of in her own way. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, when she um, she goes to art school and then meets and falls in love with Max Ernst and then goes to, to Paris, I believe. And Well, actually, I go to Cornwall. Oh, okay. It's it's kind of interesting because there are some really beautiful um, uh, photographs from that that first. There's like a two week series. A bunch of these artists who had come over for the surrealism exhibit in London. They were all invited down to Cornwall, and they mm. all went down there. And I mean, it's 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 amazing to just think of all these people in one place at one time and just sort of just hanging out and, and there, but there's some very beautiful photographs in part because Lee Miller was one of the people who was there and, you know, she takes beautiful photographs, but there's also a wonderful photograph of, of Lee Miller and Leonore Carrington. And I'm going to forget who else, but there's about four of them and all these women there, they all just look like they're peacefully sleeping. It's, it's very beautiful photograph. And um, I think Penrose took it. Um, but yeah, so this, this is like, the first chance that they have to really be together. And then it's like off to Paris and amongst all the other, you know, surrealists and the other artists that are in Paris at that time, it was just a wild time of real great and uh, um, sort of just abundance of, of energy and enthusiasm and all kinds of ideas and people doing different kinds of work and all the, you know, surrealism. I mean, surrealism is kind of a, inadequate term to really cover 
Carrington, but it's it's the movement that she's associated with. Although, of course, most of the people associated with are are men, and women were supposed to be the you know the what is it the femme enfant. They're supposed to just be mute, <laughs> basically. And and as she always said, even at that time, it's like I'm too busy to be anybody's muse. <laughs> right. Fair enough. I mean, I was wondering if, although you know, a lot of Leonora Carrington's paintings present this sort of very unusual imagery. If it's just that her her work gets classed as surrealism because of its unusualness, whereas actually I get the sense that she's actually painting something that's that's not in a way not surreal. It's it's just a it's a different world almost. And it's it's her her vision of things, and so putting putting together the images that that are important to her, like that that first self portrait, which is probably the most famous mm. paintings that that people who don't know anything about her have probably at least seen that painting. I mean, it's her in the riding clothes because she always loved riding, and the hyena, which became this very you know powerful <laughs> figure for her at a, at a fairly young age the rocking horse on the wall is her actual rocking horse from childhood that um mm. was you know sort of her her comfort inside but also i mean it was a real point of sentiment her her father burned it because he was so upset with her and he knew right. how much that hurt her. And then, of course, in the in the background of the painting is the white horse running away and the symbol of freedom, what she wanted to do. She wanted to be that white horse. And by the time she painted that painting, she had actually managed it. And that's, while it looks surreal to other people, it's just clearly all these symbols that are very important to her. And this, the look of her with her hair, just sort of like the wind is going through it and a very sort of, powerful look like she's um you know orchestrating everything that's just sort of manifesting what she had managed to make happen and so and there's there's another there's a real fascinating painting called um the house opposite yeah i never get never get the titles right i think it's just called the house opposite and people are like oh you know it's it's all of these different things and it's very mystical and this and her um, cousin who also has written a book about her said well actually that is the house that was opposite her in Mexico <laughs> had been you know damaged and and I think bombed and there were portions of it you know sort of open to the sky and she just peopled it with you know all of these characters that she imagined being in there so I mean there's there's an awful lot of of just straightforward reality but because of the unusual things that have happened to her that people are like well I think it's mystical or surreal it's like well no that's just kind of a, a telescoped version of things that happened yeah I mean I can imagine with her work it's there's a propensity to sort of overanalyze it in terms of what it means but actually it's hard to have that sort of objective um, view of it sometimes isn't it because because ultimately it's it's one person never like to explain <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean she painted the things for her and she got sort of ideas she had in her head and she put them down in this form and then uh, mostly she was kind of like oh done with that you know give it to somebody or if she really liked it it might you know stay in the house and hang on the wall but it was really sort of getting in a fixed form something that was that was in her mind and it's it is sort of interesting the the amount of things that end up in a picture and that really 
I, I think really invite the viewer to say, you know, what does this mean and how does it put together? But she was also very keen on the idea that people would make their own meanings from it. And I mean, certain symbols were just ones that repeated because they were very important to her, like the, the white horse and the hyena often show up in, in different places. But there are a lot of images where you can sort of get a sense of, of a kind of ambiance to it but all of the details of it, even some of them, you really have to see them in person. You have to see them up close and see the amount of detail, but it's still like, it's very tantalizing, but it's ne it's never, you know, exact. There's not like, oh, I can go through here and find the keys to it and know exactly what this means because the meaning also may have changed while she was working on it. And it's something not coming out right. Well, change it a little bit. Well, this creature will become a tree. And sometimes they're in mid transformation. So a creature becomes a tree. And, mm. you know, it's, it's, I think for, for this, for the kind of work that she was doing, a lot of it was just sort of making realizations and thinking about these very, uh, complex topics, the sort of, you know, the alchemy and all the occult things that she was very interested in and sort of exploring different ways of understanding things that she might have read in books and sort of saying, how do I visualize that? How do I turn that into something? And sometimes, you know, a few different uh, attempts at the same image, but complicated ideas, trying to make complicated images. And, and I think for her, a lot of the time it was, sort of making the visual representation made it clearer than just the words. Although clearly she loved to write too and sort of write in these very mm. different kinds of styles and write in very different sort of narratives, many of which do start from actual experiences. And, you know, people are like, well, surreal tales. It's like, well, it's, it starts in reality. It's like maybe it goes off in sort of a surreal direction. But a lot of things too that it was, you know, images that she had painted the the house that she and uh, Max Ernst lived in when they moved out of Paris into the countryside um, they decorated that and there were sculptures that they put and they painted the walls and so there was a lot of of images like you know if you tell a story of a strange creature it's like well it's not just a strange creature it's something she painted on the side of the house so there's often this very realistic beginning to these paintings that end up being seen as like, well, this is all symbolic, clearly. How do I, how do I, you know, sort of break this down and understand what's going on? It's like, well, no, that actually was one of their neighbors. It's just a little fanciful <laughs> because, you know, she, I was going to say mystifies it, but, but she turns it into something that is beyond the reality of it, but that captures the, the nature of it, the spirit of it. Right. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Because, Later on, just before World War Two, she ends up in Spain and goes through a pretty traumatic experience. Did we just talk about that um, briefly? Yeah. So, well, this is after um, Ernst is uh, um, taken into the prison camps first in um, France because he's, you know, German by nationality, and and they were, you know, worried that he was the enemy. And then of course, after that, when the German army takes over France, he's, of course, artists are seen as, you know, these kinds of artists, especially the surrealists were seen as decadent, you know, um, 
terrible, terrible risks to culture to have these kinds of people running around. So he was, he was imprisoned. And finally, you know, as, as the Germans were coming into France, uh, her friends around her were like, we've, we've really got to get out of here. And they had, you know, not surprising, an enormous amount of difficulty trying to get out Finally, you know, trying to find different paths as a lot of refugees were, were coming out of out of France at that time. And they finally made it through into Spain um, with some difficulty. And again, this is where the narrative becomes a little uncertain. Uh, whatever the original cause of it, she does end up in this this mental hospital, um, Santander. And the treatment she receives there, it seems pretty brutal. And again. It's we have her version that was in the what's been published is um, down below um, a couple that's been published under a couple of different names um, that, again, sort of has this surrealist tone, but it also very clearly tells the kinds of experiences that she was putting up with and that it was not it was not by any means, a, you know, what we think of as modern psychiatric care and that the sort of experimental medications that. Uh, apparently were being used on her weren't necessarily to help her actually get better, but to make her more compliant. Um, So not, not the best thing, but she is finally able to leave that place. Um, But it leaves her for a very long time with a lot of, you know, mental scarring. And there are a number of stories that people tell about, you know, later when she's in Portugal, as they're all trying to get out of Europe and then in New York and then finally in Mexico, that people tell a lot of sort of strange behaviors that she does. There's one story about her being in a restaurant and just beginning to spread mustard on her feet. All right. And another story that she had a party with a bunch of people. And again, most of them all the refugee artists who'd come over um, to New York at that time, uh, because by that point, Max Ernst is with Peggy Guggenheim, who helped a lot of artists move out. Um, But she's she just gets up, leaves the room, goes into the bathroom and takes a shower in her clothing. And so that she clearly was having a, you know, a lot of of difficulty sort of coping with all the things that had happened to her and that it left a lot of, a lot of uncertainties and certainly a lot of, you know, if the stories are true. And again, I mean, <laughs> this is another thing. It's all, all of these sort of oral histories of the time, but clearly she was really deeply scarred by the war as many people were. And also, you know, the, Getting to Portugal after after Spain, which is where a lot of them were finally getting ways, finding ways to get out of the country, and then discovering that Max had survived, which you know she still hadn't been sure at that point, but also that he was with somebody new, which also had you know a good amount of um, harrowing sort of psychological uh, side yeah. to it as well. So there is there is quite a bit of of emotional back and forth. Uh, during the time, I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly how long it was, but a number of the artists all met up in, in Lisbon before going off to uh, North America. And so finally, she, um, there was someone recommended to her who is uh, um, Renato Leduc, who was a um, Portuguese official at that time. Um, uh, he actually married her so he could get her a visa so she could leave the country. And they they were kind of together for a while in Mexico, but 
not really very close and and by mutual agreement they kind of broke up the the marriage which was you know again largely to get a visa she spent a brief amount of time in new york she wasn't really very happy there um and then went to and and then they ended up in mexico and um she ended up marrying um uh, gosh, am I going to say it wrong? Is he Hungarian um, photographer uh, Chiki Weiss? And they actually they stayed together quite a long time, and I have had two children who are um, one of whom was at the Edge Hill conference, um, Gabriel and Pablo. Um, so both of them, I think, are working on keeping their mother's legacy alive. It sounds like I mean that time kind of trying to get out of Europe at the end in before World War II, it sounds like a, a frighteningly real period in her life. Um, so, I mean, what her life was like in terms of her interest in, in these sort of otherworldly ideas, I mean, it, it, the clash of those interests against a, a frighteningly real background and this, and along with what happened in Spain must have been a, a pretty stressful time. <laughs> Well, and and think of the the difference too from going from you know from Britain and, and then Paris and then to Mexico, which is a very different, not only a very different culture, but I mean just weather wise, it's very hot, yeah. very dry. I mean this is this is considerably different. And I think one of the one of the themes that comes up in the hearing trumpet is her her love for the idea of Lapland and the cold and the snow. Yes. I can imagine. You know, sort of a contrast to the the heat and the the dryness, and even the desert parts of of uh, Mexico. That that it was not just a culture shock, but just a physical shock in in many ways too. And one of the fortunate things is that there were other um, expats um, or refugees in the uh, in the city in that area. Um, part of them drawn by. Uh, the Mexican government was very welcoming to all the refugees uh, coming from the war at that time and um, welcomed people in, were glad to see them come. Um, certainly Frida Kahlo and, and um, Diego Rivera were sort of one center of of artists and intellectuals, although they were kind of, I, w- I wouldn't say they were hostile, but they were kind of concerned about the sort of... Um, um, a lot of the Europeans coming and feeling that sort of colonialism um, uh, aspect. Uh, what am I trying to say? But again, the sort of colonial, traditional colonial powers coming over to Mexico, they were a little uneasy with this kind of, you know, almost it felt like a colonization effort. But there were a number of others, um, many of them uh, also refugees in the area. And unfortunately, actually one of, Leonora Carrington's very best friends, Remedios Varro, who's uh, Spanish, but also came over at that time. They ended up just uh, clicking and, and being really, really close friends all unt- up until um, Remedios Varro's um, sudden death. Um, but also uh, Katie Horna, who was a photographer, um, she was another one, but there was a whole group of people. And in fact, a lot of people that were interested in sort of metaphysical topics mm. that were all together at that time. So there were a number of people that she found that shared interests. So I think once the sort of, um, they worked out where everybody was and that there were a number of people that they all sort of shared sensibilities with and began to sort of get used to the culture and, and feel more part of it, um, that things went a lot better. And in fact, she ended up spending 
most of the rest of her life in Mexico, even, you know, after the war was done, um, there was a brief period of, of um, a lot of kind of cultural unrest in the late 60s, early 70s, where she actually felt unsafe. I think mostly on behalf of her sons who were university students and a lot of the sort of revolutionary um, feeling was in the universities at the time. And there was, there were pretty strong government crackdowns. So for a while they left and lived in New York, um, but then came back to, to Mexico because that by then that really felt like her home. Right. And I remember you mentioning earlier that, when she was living in Mexico, she was again sort of surrounded by a, a rich mythology oh, yeah. that she was very much interested in. Yes, and and visited a lot of the the um, Mayan and Aztec um, temples and and ruins that were left behind, and found them. I mean, found them really um, engaging, but also just very awe inspiring because you know you see these huge Aztec temples. They're they're quite you know, amazing edifices to go. And mm. apparently she really enjoyed, you know, when people would visit her, she would take them and be like, oh, you've got to see this. <laughs> <laughs> but also that this this mythology and, and also, you know, the sort of more, the folk traditions too. She was very keen on going to the, um, the sort of local markets where the, the curanderas and uh, other sorts of healers would have, you know, the they would sell, um, sort of different kinds of potions and cures and, and different kinds of like little, little sort of charms and, and objects. Uh, there's a, there's a interesting uh, documentary with her, which I'm trying to think if it's, it might be on canopy. If, if you have a library that has access to canopy, which is a film streaming service for libraries um, it's on there. And I think what is, it's called the reflowering of the crone. Um, but it, it has, it goes, they, the filmmakers, they go with her to one of these markets and she's sort of showing them around and showing the kinds of things that you can buy there and all the, the, the different charms and, you know, sort of other things that you, you can buy these little poppets for good luck. And, and she was very fascinated by that and sort of all these different kinds of, of healing traditions too. And as well as, of course, all of the, um, you know, the different foods, of course, but also like the clothing that you could buy and the, the different kinds of, of fabrics and colors were very different from what she had been accustomed to in, in uh, Europe. Okay. And so do you think that being around that culture, that was, if it had an effect on her, it was more of a personal one than in terms of her artwork? Because her, her artwork seems, her, her style seems pretty consistent. And then within that, what she paints is is varied if you if you see what mm. i mean um well since a lot of it is sort of i don't know what would i say otherworldly that there's there's a kind mm. of there's a mystical component to it that she's always thinking about sort of beyond even just you know this plane of existence but also sort of connecting to the galaxy. There's some beautiful paintings of her that really sort of have that sense of the sky and the sky far beyond this place, but also that there's a kind of timeless otherworldliness about the, the locations in her paintings. I mean, some of them, you can think of something like green tea. It's like, you could look at that and know that's Europe. That is a garden, an enclosed <laughs> garden. In Europe. Yeah. It's very, very clear. But if you look at something like um, the temple of the word, which has all of these, you know, fascinating creatures in it. And they're in a temple that looks sort of vaguely Grecian, 
but you look at the sort of world around it and it doesn't look anything like it doesn't look anything like anything you've seen it doesn't look anything like a, a it looks like a real place but it looks like a real place that you've never seen so uh some of her things it's it really seems I wouldn't say consistent because you can kind of see sort of how her work changes over time and how it becomes almost more sort of ethereal. Mm. Um, and some of it, I think, is certainly the um, Mexican architecture works its way into her paintings in, I think, in a, a very realistic way of that's what she's looking at every day. And so sort of the shapes of the buildings can often take that on. but. Yeah, her her work is really kind of beyond just um, a definite place in time. You know, as much as I said earlier about, well, yeah. she's often just basing it on things she's seeing every day. She, it's like she picks them up and, and takes them into her, her own little sort of separate world, a different place. Mm, I mean, you were kind enough to send me the slides that you have for your talk at Treadwells. And uh, I have to admit, and all, all the pictures that are included in your and your slides are, are fantastic. But what I really like was, uh, is there something called, is it Mujeres Conciencia? Ah, this is yes. a dark green image of like a crocodile sort of entity and a couple of other beings sort of below that. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's fantastic and fantastical. And there's also one called a map for the human. Oh, the drawing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, because I I didn't want to include just paintings and the um, like <laughs> scrolling through to find find it myself. Um, the yeah, actually, Mujeres Conciencia is also I think a drawing, not a painting. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, so that's why it has that that very more sort of um, wispy look. Uh, a map of right. an animal is. Yeah. I this is one that I really want to see in real life because there's. It's it's a drawing, and so a lot of it's faint, and there's all this little writing on it too, but it's this this clearly this map to sort of understand how humanity relates to everything else, and it's you know it's it's got this almost kind of lotus like image in the center, and then a sort of human figure standing up from it, and then going out from one side a snake and another a lion, and there's a kind of it almost looks like a fire drake, and and then down below there's there's I don't know if it's a giraffe or a jaguar. I think it's supposed to be a giraffe, and then these sort of other two-headed creatures coming out of that. So it's it reminds me of if you've ever seen the the images um, from Hildegard of Bingen where mm. she's got these sort of images of the world and then shows how everything connects in the universe. But she's got a few different versions of this. It reminds me of that. It reminds me of this very medieval way of seeing the cosmos in the world and then individuals or, or humanity within the cosmos. So it's all like this kind of um, overlapped mapping of Everything, everything is the same in in metaphorical sense, but you're looking at it from the greatest to the smaller as you go into it. It's almost like a kind of um, schematics of of the universe. And this, I mean, for me, this certainly seems to be um, 
I wouldn't say based on that, but expressing the same kind of idea. I mean, she did go to art school. She did probably see a lot of these different kinds of of, uh, medieval images. And so sometimes it's interesting to see sort of sparks that go back and forth between that because I'm by training a a medievalist. So Hmm. these things are in my head. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, you're you're right. It does really remind me of of, of an image you would find in that in that sort of era of, of book, like a a book on alchemy or something. Well, yeah. And she was. I mean, she was very, very into alchemy, and she very into sort of thinking about the the process of alchemy and the the colors of alchemy. And then, of course, also, I mean, as with the, the with the hearing trumpet. Um, we've got the Grail legend in there, which you know, mm. you kind of tipped off at the beginning, where you know Marion Leatherby's son is named Galahad. And right. Yeah. Anybody, anybody who knows anything about the the Grail legends will immediately it's like Galahad. Well, that's an interesting thing to name your son. And of course, when we get to the Holy Grail by the end, it's like you know, a payoff, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. Right. So let's get on to the hearing trumpet. In in your in your talk that you gave, you described the down below is sort of a, the Old Testament to the hearing trumpets, New Testament. Um, can you expand on that a little? Well, it, it's in some sense, it's um, down below is where she first kind of, at least in 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 narrative form. I would say the the painting is separate from that, but it's the first time she sort of sees that world and sees everything fall apart and survives it. But the hearing trumpet is where she sort of puts that all back together and sees the point of the falling apart. There's kind of a, a, a way of making sense of all the things that have happened to her and seeing the world falling apart not as the end of things, but as a necessity, and that, that it's a way of, you know, we think of... Um, sort of clearing clearing the way for what has to come, that you have to get rid of the old things. Um, my friend Byron Ballard is really fond of saying, you know, we're living in tower times, but the tower has to come down and then we can rebuild, that you have all these um, very different changes. <laughs> Sorry, the dog's coming down the stairs. I don't know okay. if he can do that. <laughs> I think he's suddenly decided that I've been talking to somebody else too long. Um, um, but let me let me let me see if I get back track to that. Um, that having seen the world and seen the world fall apart and survive it, that she then can come back from that experience and say, "Well, what if we deliberately make everything fall down? What's left after you take it apart?" And and certainly in the times we're living in now where we're seeing, you know, the massive effects of, of climate change, that this idea of the poles shifting and Mexico suddenly becoming like Lapland is not so fantastical as it once seemed. Mm. Um, and, and the idea that we may have to deal with these kind of catastrophic changes is also something that has a little bit more currency now. And, you know, whether you see that as, as her, just imagining this sort of fantasy world. I mean, we, we have a lot of narratives over time about the ends of the world. I mean, we go all the way back to, to certainly to, to Mary Shelley's The Last Man. But I mean, there's in the, in the Middle Ages, we have the, the sort of um, imagining the end of the world through hellscapes that, you know, we always have saints who get gifted with a vision of heaven and a vision of hell. And of course, 
you know, medieval authors, they, they don't spend much time on the heaven because that's not really mm. interesting. They spend all the time in the <laughs> sort of showing all the suffering that will come. And it's like, this is the world that will come if you don't, you know, straighten up and fly right. <laughs> but, right yeah. but for, for um, the hearing trumpet, that it's really, it's so much more narratively, it's a much richer story. And even though it doesn't have that kind of, um, the urgency of, of having lived through that experience, it feels so authentic. I mean, you can imagine she's writing this actually in the 1950s when she's in like her 30s. So imagining herself as this 92-year-old um, uh, narrator, Marion Leatherby, who's, you know, got her little gray beard and loses her <laughs> earring and, and thinks life is fine and sailing along until, you know, her, her, her friend Carmela, who is, it was very much based on um, Remedios Varo, um, gives her the hearing trumpet and suddenly she hears like her family is, you know, really fed up with her and they're going to get rid of her and send her off to this old folks home. It's really interesting how she's able to embody that character at such a young age and which with such sympathy too and to even show the kind of drifting in and out of of uh what we would think of as you know alzheimer's or or you know related diseases that that the difference between the the waking world the sleeping world and then this kind of memory she gets lost in is feels very realistic too that she's suddenly um, imagining, well, remembering the past and imagining other things that are connected to this memory and not exactly sure when she comes back to sort of the present moment. And so it has that real genuine feel of, of you know, suffering that kind of, of lack of memory or lack of memory, <laughs> sort of inability to control memory. But of course, it has all these these um, you know sort of occult elements from the studies that she was very much engaged in. In fact, the the home that Marion is sent to, um, well, it's full of all these little strange buildings. But the 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 central part of it, the the um, what is it, the the well of light brotherhood that runs the, right. this home is is based on the the Gurdjieff study group in Mexico City and some of the people there. So she's she's spoofing these people because she she and uh, uh, Remedios Varo were both in that group and for a long time studied with them, but eventually she found it a little too um, restricting and you know sort of gave up. But these were her friends and, and making a little bit of fun of it and a little bit of fun of sort of the rigidness of the rule and the exercises that they had to do because you know you're at this level so you have to do these exercises because they will you know help lead you to this clarity of vision that that you need. And the and I again the um one of the sort of interesting aspects of it of course is is that it's the home is called Santa Brigida and uh Saint Bridget was very much based on this is actually part of my dissertation very much based on the 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 goddess Bridget who's you know the goddess of, of poetry and smithing and fire so it's it's interesting that she's using a lot of these very traditional sort of religious aspects to introduce um not exactly their opposite, but sort of 
saying, well, what are the other resonances to that name? And like the, the winking nun, the painting that she sees mm. in the dining room, which I just love the whole story of that. And again, based on this idea of the um, medieval vitae of, of saints, the lives of saints, which were, you know, the biggest genre in the Middle Ages, everybody read them. They were like the superhero stories of the time, which is how mm. did these saints try to be like Christ and how did they live their lives um, in order to achieve this? And so they're kind of adventure stories. You know, we wouldn't see most of them probably as adventure stories now. But for <laughs> the Middle Ages, this was, you know, this was entertainment. This was exciting. And the... Uh, um, yeah, the the saint in question, the winking nun, uh, alchemical explorer, Doña Rosalinda Alvarez Cruz de la Cueva, who is the abbess of the convent of Santa Barbara of Tartarus. And, you know, Tartarus, traditionally a name for hell. So mm. interesting, uh, again, sort of combination of, of names and, and ideas and sort of connections in all those names. And that... Um, I, yeah, this is one of the things like I, I suspect this is true, but I, I haven't found a way to research or I haven't found any reference to it yet. But there's a, a very famous um, uh, Sister Juana Inez de la Cruz, who is known as the, uh, um, the Mexican Phoenix. She was um, a poet, a philosopher, a scholar, a composer in uh, 17th century uh, Mexico. And she is... Uh, the school that she founded has become a university and they're now um, they give out the most prestigious literary prize in Mexico, um, which in 2009, Leonora Carrington was, uh, was uh, given. And, but there's this famous 18th century portrait of her um, by Miguel Cabrera that I think might have, and I'm sure, you know, it's, it's a famous portrait and she's probably seen it many times. If not the painting itself, then certainly reproduced. I wonder if that was one of the inspirations behind her own uh, um, uh, uh, Doña Rosalinda, possibly. But it's, it's sort of interesting to look at because it, although it's an 18th century painting, it really sort of captures that, that feeling of a medieval portrait. So I don't know. I, I, I suspect it might have been one of the inspirations for her. And certainly the life of Doña Rosalinda, which takes in not only sort of um, uh, alchemical history, history of the grail, and there's, you know, there's cross-dressing, there's, there's a little bit of everything. It's, it's a fascinating story. And it's she definitely of, sounds like a kindred spirit, <laughs> Leonora <laughs> Carrington. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. And this this um, idea that that all of these layers, all these layers are there. That all of these things can be found if you dig enough. And again, that that this sort of um, tie to the um, occult studies that she was doing, and sort of understanding the the. Um, the ways that you use alchemy to produce these different things. That it's part of it is process, but part of it also is just keep digging, go deeper. One of the influence, one of the obvious influences on the book too is um, Robert Graves, the white goddess, which she mm. and a number of her friends had all been reading, you know, which had come out in what, 1949, I think. Uh, so it was very much, you know, inspiring a lot of imagination and, and sort of this idea of, of 
you know, behind the old ways, again, like the Margaret Murray um, witch cults, oh, they survived on, and they're the old religions, you know, things that have been discredited now, but that were very much part of the popular imagination and this idea that, you know, well, behind this veneer of Christianity, there were these other things going on and maybe they have survived over time. And certainly in the case of the hearing trumpet, you know, once the tower falls, you know, this this sign of, of phallic power, there is the the cavern down below that they must each descend into to have this kind of initiatory scene and this this um, recognition of their selves of themselves and within this kind of tripartite goddess which is very much you know graves but um, seeing themselves and understanding themselves and sort of having this kind of ritual death within the cauldron because she has to you know throw herself into the cauldron and then eat the soup that's in the cauldron. So, you know, almost sort of self-consumption, but seeing, you know, the, the, the different versions of herself and then coming up and running into the other old women and realizing that they have all been through this kind of rebirth. And I think one of the things that's probably very different from sort of modern sensibilities, they're not born again, new and young, they're still the same elderly women that they were when they went in, but they have a new kind of excitement and, and a new realization of their own, their own power, but also that, that there's so much more yet to do that they want to do. And that I think is, is, is what was really powerful for her, that you bring all of the experiences of your life to this moment of, you know, you're never too old to learn something new. And what do they learn? They learn quite a bit and about the, the power structures that are around them, but also adapting to this new world. Everything is suddenly covered with snow. They're cut off from the rest of the world. And then, of course, the wolves come. But then the wolves end up being friends. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it's a, as, as like you were saying earlier, somebody who was in the, like in the 30s when they wrote it, her portrayal of someone in the 90s is... It's really convincing. I mean, it's such an entertaining book. It's funny as well. Like, it's, there's, there are plenty of points in it which made, had me chuckling to myself um, about her adventures. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. I mean, it, it's you when you think of the sort of books that that have this kind of um, you know sort of occult passage, a rite of passage, and sort of these important issues and all of these you know very serious issues. It's really, really a funny book. And I mean, I, I love uh, you, uh, Carmela, who is just, you know, her, her idea of how to sort problems. It's like, you know, well, she finds out, Marion finds out that her, her family is going to send her away to a home. And Carmela's idea is like, okay, so we need machine guns and a tank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. It's like, oh, well, this is, well, this is the logical way to do it. Or that or Marion's sort of vague vague ideas of creative projects at the beginning of the book it's like with her cats she's always brushing her cats it's like well you know i'm gonna i'm gonna turn it into thread and then i'm gonna knit some you know knit a jumper for myself from cat hair and it's like you know she still you know has these creative ideas it's just they're very low key at the start and by the end you know they're remaking the world it's you know a a difference of scale i guess (laughs) yeah i mean i one thing i was thinking is that is the hearing trumpet is it just a plot device or because when i was reading i was thinking does the hearing trumpet does it mean something 
is it a metaphor? But the more I think about it, is, is it just a plot device to enable the story to progress, do you think? Well, I think I, there's actually, there's a very strong focus on the sound of things. And I think we don't tend to really focus on on hearing as much as vision, just because, you know, we're visual creatures by our, our biology. But there's, I mean, there's always, there's always sounds. And the sounds are always cues of something else going on. Her, uh, one of the important parts is, is her sort of refuge when she's dealing with the strangeness of being in this, this, this home, I guess you could say, is her refuge is the bee pond. Mm. And when she's there and when she's, she's trying to be calm and, it, she's surrounded by sound. It's the humming of the bees and it's the sound of the breeze and the birds singing. And when all of those sounds, these very different sounds are surrounding her, that's when she's peaceful. That's when she's calm. And so at each stage, there's a hearing, there's something that she needs to hear. And when they're joining together, when they find their power, the women after their sort of rebirth moment, they're singing, they're singing the song and summoning the bee goddess because that's how that's how you reach her and that's how she speaks to them she comes as bees and she speaks through the sound of bees to them so i I think that that the hearing is an important part and she does still and again the she's much more spry after her rebirth but she still needs the hearing trumpet to hear things carefully so it's like it's not like everything is suddenly fixed by this this rebirth moment but it's it's always there and this consciousness of choosing when to listen and when not to listen to that it really makes i think a kind of an additional point of saying you know we are surrounded by a lot of sound how do you select what's actually important is one of the first women she meets when she gets to um, the home in her little lighthouse where she goes, um, she talks nonstop. She just does not stop talking. And she finally, she just takes her hearing trumpet down because she's like this, clearly I don't need to hear all this. And so she's much better about choosing what do I actually listen to? And I think in, in that way, it's, it's about sort of where do you focus your energy? What do you pay attention to and what really matters? Because, you know, she's constantly being told, oh, you should pay attention to this and the lectures they get over dinner. And instead of listening to the lecture, she takes down her hearing trumpet and she stares at the painting that intrigues her. And this way she finds sort of the the key to the answers. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic book. And I think another item she gets given, which kind of moves the story forward again, is this, is this life of the saints, isn't it? So. Yes. Yes. At a very, at a very key moment. And from Christabel, who's the, who's interesting, this, this woman, she's Jamaican, but she's been to Oxford. And again, you think of it in, in, the time when she's writing in the you know early 1950s, that still probably would have been a very sort of standout moment. But she's the one sort of behind the scenes. There's there's so much going on behind the scenes. There's the woman who's been living. There's well the man who's been living as a woman, and there are you know intrigues going on. Somebody gets poisoned. I mean, there's so many different things happening at that time. But yeah, there there. I, I think plot-wise, it is a little sort of clunky moment where it's just like, oh, here's the life of that saint you've been staring at. <laughs> Need to know this. 
And it's, it's really just sort of once we jump into that story, because that becomes sort of a story within the story that we're, we're reading her sort of secret, the, the secret life of her by the, the, um, the priest who knows that he's, you know, he's going to be, he's going to be so punished by telling the story, but he has to tell this story because it's, it's so unbelievable. And, uh, all the, again, all the very interesting twists and turns in that narrative, including the, the, you know, a miraculous birth that is very, very odd. <laughs> but yeah, wow. and the, the elixir, the, the wonderful elixir that um, gives people this sexual potency, but also allows them to float in the air. So there's this kind of uh, amazing euphoria that lifts them up in, in a very literal sense. Mm. Do you think that Leonora Carrington, do, do you think that the hearing trumpet is perhaps would that be the, the work that she's most proud of? Or is she the sort of person that would just love everything that she, she produced? Um, I know she was really happy with it and, and was very glad when it finally uh, was finally published because it, it took some time. Hmm. Um, but she was also, I think, especially when she got older, she was kind of like, I, I don't care. I just do the stuff I want to do, <laughs> and which I think is like an attitude I really need to learn. Um, but just do the stuff I want to do and whatever happens to it. Well, it's not really my problem. <laughs> of course, she had a, she had a little enough. more um, attention by then too. Cause I mean, she had a few pieces um, exhibited here and there. She did have a, um, a, a solo show in the seventies in New York, but I mean, it, it wasn't anything on the kind of level of success of like most of the men who are associated with, with surrealism or even Frida Kahlo. When I'm again, Frida Kahlo, the real sort of fame for her came much, much later too. But yeah, there's, there seems to be a real moment now with, with, uh, Carrington and uh, Remedias Varro, Dorothea Tanning. Um, the uh, Tate has just bought a bunch of stuff for um, Ethel Cahoon. Uh, I think they're mm. going to be doing a, a, a show for her next year. So, so things are starting to come up, but it's still like really at the beginning of the recognition for these these women who. Um, I've done extraordinary things. I mean, it's I've just I've been obsessed for like the last few years with with Carrington and Varro and Leonor Fini too, who is also somebody that they they knew in, in Paris. Who's again a very interesting and sort of multi um, multimedia kind of work that she did too. A lot of of costuming and uh, there was just a big show of hers. Um, oh gosh, was it this spring or last fall? In uh, uh, oddly enough, the the Museum of Sex in New York City. <laughs> okay. I went there going like, well, you know, they'll probably have a few pieces, and it's like, what is Ian Orfini? I'll go. It was enormous. It was a, it was like on three floors, and they just had tons of things, and it was absolutely fantastic. And it was like many of these works I'd not even seen reproduced before. So let alone and then being able to see them in person and they had videos of, she used to give big parties uh, in uh, um, Southern Italy on an Island. I'm not going to remember. Was it Capri? Maybe. Um, but people would go and then they would all make elaborate costumes and have big sort of party festival celebrations. It was really great stuff. But, you know, like Leonora Carrington, there's been a huge exhibit in Mexico city, which I wasn't able to get to 
I fortunately, you know, thank you, Instagram, because people who did go at least posted lots of pictures, which is great. But hopefully that show will appear somewhere else. And there's, um, there's uh, sculptures of hers that have been exhibited in what used to be a prison in uh, Mexico City. So you can go to this place and, and see a lot of her, her sculptures, which I think is kind of cool. A former prison, she would, she would appreciate that uh, wonder of that. And her home is supposed to become a museum. But um, the last, oh, I talked to her, her cousin, Joanne Moorhead, who wrote uh, a book about her. She was um, in the summer in they, the painting she did of Max Ernst, uh, has been purchased by the Museum of Modern Art in Edinburgh. So they had a big thing for that. Uh, so I was able to go up and admire that at, at close view, but also Joanne Moorhead came up and was giving a little bit of a talk about her her cousin. And she said that so far they haven't made too much progress, I guess, on, on making the house a museum, but it is still, it's like in the plans. It's just these things often, it takes a long time for the, the money to come together, I guess for things like that. So, but something to look forward to. Oh yeah, definitely. I put that on my list of places <laughs> I want to visit. Because <laughs> the more I read, the more I read about her, the more, she just seems like a fascinating person and, 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 a, and a great person too. Just, I, I admire her ability to sort of connect with her interest in the otherworldliness of, of things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and very, very funny, quite a, quite a character. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, a Lena Poniatowska novel, um, <laughs> Joanne Moorhead said, well, it's kind of breathless, isn't it? But it's so much fun. It's like, it re- I mean, it really does just read like a novel and you're like, going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> All these things that, that happen. Really, really interesting stuff. And, uh, oh, I should mention Susan Aberth's book too, which is uh, probably the standard uh, uh, art history catalog on her, which is uh, Leonora Carrington. Surrealism, alchemy, and art. And there's also, oh, I mean, it's like unusual things. She was also interested in, in theater somewhat. Um, she worked on plays with, uh, what was, she was kind of mentored to um, Alexander Hodorowsky. Yes. And they did a play Penelope, which she did all the costumes and sets for. And there's, um, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the name of uh, the director, Moctezuma. Um, it's, the DVD is called the mansion of madness. Um, right. And it's it, on the film itself. It's like Dr. Tower's um, house of torture, but she did the costumes and some of the set for that as well. I think because, I think because of her son, I think her son, Gabriel got her involved in it, but it's like, I finally splurged on, on the expensive out of print DVD for that because it's like, Oh, I've got to see these costumes better, but really interesting stuff. It seems a lot of it influenced by tarot. And I know Fulgur press were at the, um, um, occult humanities conference. And then I saw that they were down in Mexico photographing her tarot cards. And I was like, Ooh. Oh, when's that coming out? <laughs> That so, sounds great. Well, things are in the works, so much to look forward to. Hopefully Definitely. another big exhibit somewhere that I can actually get to. Oh, that'd be amazing. Well, Kate, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. This was this was a lot of fun. I'm always I'm always glad to talk about Leonore Carrington and, and I'm just I have more and more research to do because there's the more I discover about her, the more I want to discover. So thanks, Rick. Oh, you're very welcome. If people want to find out more about you, 
where can they find out that information? Um, <laughs> they, they can go to my website, which is kalaity.com. Brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Kate. Well, thank you. I've always been curious about the connections between art and the occult because there seems to be a great potential for crossover between these two areas. Both take a lot of time to master, both include ritual, and it can help with both if you have an active imagination. Leonora Carrington definitely possessed that quality, and it's a shame that it has taken so long for her talent to get the recognition it deserves. I think it's also a little simplistic to describe her work as surreal, when it's so often connected to events in her personal life and her interests in folklore and mythology and many other unusual subjects. Thanks again to Kate. She helped me out a lot with this episode prior to the interview. I'd like to thank Treadwells as well, because without the talk that they put on, I'd never have had the idea for such an interesting subject. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, you know the drill. Please rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcatcher, as it all really helps. To contact me at SphereHQ, email someothersphere at gmail.com and you can find the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 